Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome back to When Diplomacy Fails. I'd like to thank you guys for your well wishes and donations over the Christmas break. I must admit, I really enjoyed my time off. And you'll be happy to know that now the PhD applications to Oxford and Cambridge are done and dusted. Now it's a matter of waiting, again, to see what my next step will be. Of course, I'll let you all know what happens as soon as I find out. Another thing I should make you all aware of, this podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, and this month we are promoting Stephen Guerra's podcast, A History of the Papacy, that is... A History of the Papacy, which you should definitely check out, if you're in any way inclined towards such topics, though you should just check it out anyway, since Stephen's grasp of the topic and his presentation are top-notch. Finally, the Third Marquess of Salisbury is not the Third Marquess of Salisbury. Instead, his name is pronounced Salisbury. I lament at the ridiculousness of these people's names, but I want to present this series to you properly, so there it is. Salisbury. Thanks again to Seamus for once again steering me straight. So with all that out of the way, it's time we get down to it. I will now take you to Spring 1876, where the Berlin Memorandum has just been rejected, and Disraeli and co. are trying to figure out their next move. Enjoy, and thanks for listening. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 12. When Disraeli and his cabinet rejected the Berlin Memorandum, which had aimed at delivering an ultimatum of sorts to the Ottoman Empire, it represented a new phase in British foreign policy. From his colleagues, Disraeli received some admiration and congratulations for bringing Britain back from her isolated state and into the minds of the European powers, whereupon she can now expect to be consulted on further matters concerning the Eastern Crisis. 
from Bismarck, Disraeli received a level of respect. This was to be expected, since in the months before, when the Andrassy note, the precursor to the Berlin Memo, had been accepted by the British cabinet, Bismarck had lamented that British adherence to it ruined both his chance to remain neutral in any Austro-Russian affair, as well as the British chance to assert her own position in European politics and become more involved in the continent. From others, such as William Gladstone, whose position we'll examine later on in the episode, the rejection resembled a manifestation of the worst aspects of Disraeli's character. His immorality, his self-interest, and his failure to consider the consequences of his actions. For his part, Disraeli did not rest on his laurels. In early June 1876, he persuaded the cabinet to approve sending the Mediterranean fleet towards its more forward base along the Dardanelles, as well as issue a warning to the courts of Europe that treaties must be respected. Disraeli was, if anything, becoming dramatically more involved in the goings-on of European affairs, but if he expected immediate returns on this sudden change in policy, then he would be mistaken. Disraeli had hoped that by getting Bismarck on side and bothering the Russians, he would be able to draw Bismarck and eventually the Austrians out of the Dry Kaiserbund and perhaps cause its disintegration, an event which would leave Russia isolated. However, what Disraeli seems not to have anticipated was Bismarck's own determination to preserve the Three Emperors League for his own reasons, namely the isolation of France. Bismarck had worked too hard in this project to see the League crumble and a lonely Russia drift towards France. Therefore, even though he welcomed the new assertiveness of Disraeli, this was likely more because of the fact that it freed him from having to choose between the Austrians or Russians, and that he was happy the Russians received something of a snubbing, rather than because he wanted to closely cooperate with Britain. Why would Bismarck have relished seeing the Russians get snubbed? John Charmley, in his book Splendid Isolation, explains that during the Is War in Sight crisis of 1875, in which Bismarck manipulated foreign and public opinion to make it seem as though Germany would attack France again, Berlin had been forced to back down by Russian and British pressure. Because the British were on the outside looking in and no good would come of holding this against London, Bismarck instead took it personally that his Russian ally had acted in such a way, and sought since 1875 to give a minor snub to the Russians in revenge. Bismarck wanted to do this without pushing Russia away. It had to be a satisfying enough snub to make Russia bothered, but it couldn't go too far. In other words, it was all the better if someone else did the snubbing for him. If it sounds petty, then that's because it most certainly was. But as is usual, the diplomacy of the 1870s has as much to do with the policies that that diplomacy was trying to pursue, as well as the people in charge of that diplomacy. A case in point is Russia. Russia at this time had its foreign policy led by Alexander Gorchakov, who was the Russian Chancellor come Foreign Secretary since 1863. Gorchakov had controlled, or at least tried to control, Russian policy from that point, with a view towards making the Dry Kaiserbund more effective and beneficial to Russia, as well as attempting to rein in any potential upsets to the status quo, such as the Is War and Sight crisis of May 1875, which had put Gorchakov on edge. Although Gorchakov had not meant to be offensive, Bismarck seems to have taken the Russian pressure during that event deeply personally to the extent that John Charmney contends he had decided to try to reconstruct the Crimean coalition of the 1850s to trouble Russia and get revenge. 
Obviously, this would benefit Britain because there would be more opportunities in diplomacy without the Three Emperors League dominating everything. But Bismarck's ambitions for the Crimean coalition seem to have waxed and waned depending on his mood. He would not go as far as to disintegrate the Three Emperors League, even though recreating the Crimean coalition would do exactly that in practice. He seemed instead just to want to stick it to the Russians in a way Gorchakov would feel before pulling everything back to normal. In other words, as his revenge, Bismarck wanted to show Gorchakov that Russia could be pressured just as Germany had been, and Bismarck wanted to involve Russia's greatest rival, Britain, in this scheme. For these reasons, it was often difficult in London to detect exactly what Bismarck wanted. In the months after May 1875, when the Is War in Sight crisis occurred, Darby noted that he was happy for Bismarck to have been taken down a peg, while he also found something comic in the slanging match which followed. To Disraeli in 1875, this temporary falling out between the Russian and German pillars of the Three Emperors League represented a great opportunity for Britain to play into Bismarck's plan, recreate the Crimean coalition, and thereby solve the growing eastern crisis with sufficient diplomatic pressure. But Bismarck seemed only willing to go so far with it, and a year later, when Disraeli rejected the Berlin Memorandum as we saw, Bismarck made it plain that he was pleased that Britain was taking a more definite stride in foreign policy, even while he simultaneously notified the British ambassador to Germany of his intentions to keep the Dreikaiserbund in place. Bismarck wanted Britain to remain lurking in the background with the threat of resurrecting the old Crimean coalition, mainly so that he could continuously point out to Russia how fortunate it was that she had Germany as an ally and perhaps nip any notions Russia had of acting independently in the bud. Yet Bismarck ceased to turn his words to deeds where cooperating more closely with Britain was concerned, despite Darby and Disraeli patiently waiting for this to happen. Bismarck claimed that Germany remained tied to Russia because of dynastic diplomacy if nothing else. When asked by the British ambassador to Germany in June 1876 why he was not supporting his nominal Austrian ally more forcefully against the Russians, Bismarck replied that His policy was hampered by the Russian sympathies of the German Emperor William, who cared nothing for Austria and everything for his nephew the Tsar. It is lines like these which remind us just how interconnected Europe still was in the late 19th century and judging even from Bismarck's reaction, they continued to have an impact upon how foreign policy was conducted. Bismarck essentially wanted Disraeli to do his dirty work for him, because if Britain remained a threat to Russia, then Russia would have to feel like the Three Emperors League was its best chance for security. What really gets me about all this is the extent to which Disraeli doesn't seem to have grasped how much Bismarck relied upon the Three Emperors League to fulfil all of his foreign policy objectives. He would draw Disraeli in with limited promises to challenge Russia in the Balkans or at least remain neutral, but he would then retreat from directly acting because it wouldn't be compatible with the Dreikaiserbund. Disraeli, to his credit, seems to have finally gotten this message in the summer of 1876. Having hankered after a Bismarckian carrot for much of the weeks following the rejection of the Berlin Memorandum, Disraeli seemed content to approach the problem directly and go after the Russians for a deal instead. In late June 1876, Disraeli would tell Peter Shuvalov, the Russian ambassador to Britain, that neither he nor the government would ever distrust 
a great power which is governed by wise men on conservative principles. This sent a clear message, according to John Charmony, that the Russians and British should work in tandem if no direct interests conflicted. Shuvalov couldn't tell if this was Disraeli's attempt to break up the Dreikaiserbund, or if Disraeli genuinely believed in his claims that if Turkey crushes the Christians and the repression becomes tyrannous, it will be the turn of all of the great powers to interpose in the name of humanity. In other words, Disraeli was tacitly approving the idea that Britain should intervene for humanitarian reasons, something which the Russians continued to argue for as the crisis heated up and rumours of atrocities abounded. Though Disraeli certainly appreciated that the Russians had additional geopolitical interests in getting involved, interests which involved the defeat of Ottoman efforts to suppress Balkan revolts, and actually preface the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire itself. By approaching the Russian bear directly, Disraeli had hoped to solve the Eastern crisis without any need for complicated negotiations. The Russians were the power which London felt most uneasy about during the whole event, so the Russians should be the first port of call. This simplicity obscured the fact that while Ambassador Shuvalov wanted to believe in Disraeli's claims, it was the former's chief in St. Petersburg, Gorchakov, that he had to persuade. And Gorchakov soon divined that Disraeli's unwillingness to go into detail about the possible partition of the Balkans meant that he was not as serious about finding a solution as he claimed to be. Disraeli wanted to solve the crisis now before such a partition became necessary, but Gorchakov insisted to Shuvalov that such details were part of the settlement that Russia, as a concerned and interested bystander, would seek to craft. It was around this time in summer 1876 that war broke out within the rest of the Ottoman Empire's Balkan domains, as Serbia and Montenegro entered into open revolt alongside the Bulgarians and Herzegovina. To Disraeli this represented an opportunity. Bismarck could not afford to let Russia simply intervene and seize the Balkan states once it became obvious that the Slavs were going to be destroyed, which Disraeli was certain would happen if foreign intervention did not occur. Thus, Disraeli believed, London really needed to sit tight and see how Germany would react. He expected there to be some kind of conference which would enable Britain to have her say and conveniently wrap up the issues that the Eastern Crisis had raised. What Disraeli, and perhaps even Bismarck, had not realised, though, was that a very unusual kind of rapprochement between Russia and Austria was about to occur. Russian Chancellor Alexander Gorchakov had been active in diplomatic statecraft since the 1820s, and he was thus nearing the end of his life by the time the crisis in the Ottoman Empire erupted. Despite this, he remained one of the most experienced diplomats of his age if not also one of the vainest. His own personal dislike for Bismarck's pettiness led him to attempt to resurrect the dynastic diplomacy between Austria and Russia, which had dominated Europe as the Holy Alliance, also including Prussia, before the Crimean War had broken out in 1854. This Romanov-Habsburg axis enabled conservative politics to dominate Central Europe, and was essentially Gorchakov's best hope for settling conflict in the Balkans without the need of British friendship. Just as Disraeli had sought to solve problems by approaching the Russians directly, so too had Gorchakov hoped that by approaching the Austrians, he would be best able to defuse the rampant tensions between the two powers, and find a way to carve up the declining Ottoman Empire before it collapsed altogether. 
Who would be able to stop these two old dynasties from acting in concert? Certainly not Germany, where Bismarck depended on the ill will between the two to be able to leverage the other, and certainly not Britain, where likewise Disraeli depended upon Austrian goodwill to pressure Russia. The Habsburg Emperor at this time was Franz Josef, a man of exceptional constitution, since he'll still be in his place in 1914, and someone who regarded the idea of a Balkan rapprochement with a level of warmth. He must have still felt some soreness at the Prussian victory of 1866, and he also was mindful, as were the major Russia files in his court, of the part Russia had once played in preserving the Habsburg Empire in the interventions of 1848 which had helped preserve the empire as well as put the Hungarians in their place. The problem for Franz Josef in 1876 was that, just as they would be in 1914, the Hungarians were far from in their place anymore. Ever since 1867, the Austrians and Hungarians had effectively shared administration of the empire by splitting itself in half. One half was ruled by the Hungarians in Budapest, and the other was ruled by the Austro-Germans in Vienna. This agreement worked when the foreign and domestic interests of the two halves overlapped, but as Franz Josef was beginning to discover with much concern, they rarely did. Thus, one of the major obstacles to an Austro-Russian agreement, which would see the two split the Balkans between them, could be found in the Hungarian camp. Just as in 1914, when the Hungarians would protest at any increase in Habsburg authority in the Balkans, which could potentially dilute the Habsburg influence in the empire as a whole, in 1876, Jules Andrasi, the Austro-Hungarian foreign minister, who also happened to be a Hungarian, opposed the agreement between the Austrians and Russians because it would mean imperial expansion and an uncertain future. The status quo had its risks, but because to Andrasi it meant no danger where Hungary's influence was concerned, the status quo was preferable. Just as Stefan Tisa, the Hungarian minister-president of 1914, would slow down the whole process of Habsburg reaction to the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, here in 1876 we can see a prelude to that, as Andrasi straight up blocked the entire idea. Because the Hungarians were given equal weight in the administration process, there was effectively nothing that Vienna could do. Despite the paralysis Vienna felt in summer 1876, some efforts were nonetheless made. Andrasi, while he didn't want the Habsburgs to recklessly expand in the Balkans, didn't want the Russians to gain there without a Habsburg presence either. Thus caught in the same trap Tisa would be, in 1914, between Hungarian interests and the Habsburg national interest, Andrasi did his best to have it both ways for a time. In July 1876, the Russian and Habsburg emperors met at Reichstadt, in a last-ditch attempt to show that dynastic diplomacy and its history could overcome the new trend of national and imperial competition in Europe. On the 8th of July 1876, the two emperors concluded an agreement which aimed at preventing their mutually acknowledged rivalry from leading to actual war. Had this cooperation continued, Disraeli would have been left out in the cold since, as Charmley noted, Britain would have no potential partner or traditional rival of Russia to rely on to foil Russian plans. The Balkans could well have been divvied up between Habsburg and Romanov, and history would have been very different indeed. Yet that is not what happened, and the reason why had a lot to do with how the agreement signed between the two emperors had been worded. 
Andrasi thought that Russia had said it would allow the Habsburgs to have Bosnia and Herzegovina with concessions to Serbia, while Russia thought that Serbia and Montenegro would gain territory in Bosnia and Herzegovina respectively, and that Austria would only gain some Bosnian border regions. Regarding this mix-up, John Charmley noted that, quote, The most likely explanation for this discrepancy was that Gorchakov There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. whose ignorance of the geography of the region was as great as his vanity simply misunderstood what had been agreed but deliberate manipulation on Andersi's part cannot be ruled out either the two powers decided to keep the agreement secret but did accept that at some future date it might be necessary to involve the other powers in a final settlement end quote The problem with the Austro-Russian strategy was that it relied upon the revolting Balkan peoples to be successful. Otherwise, the status quo of Turkish rule would continue. When Ottoman successes became unbearable and the Serbs, Bulgarians and others were put in headlong retreat, for Russia it became less an issue of strategic interest and more the case that, if they continued to remain outside of the conflict, the Balkan rebel inhabitants would be exterminated. The possibilities that were suggested by an extermination of the Balkan peoples deeply challenged the Russian administration, since they suddenly had to deal with, as a reaction to such possibilities, and amidst an outpouring of sympathy for the Balkan plight, a resurgent campaign of pan-Slavism at home. Both the Tsar and his ministers were thus now pressured with the prospect of having to conduct a more aggressive policy in the Balkans to save their Slavic brethren. With the Russian court being newly invigorated with these passions and unable to simply swoop in upon the expected Balkan victories to partition the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Russian agreement seemed certain to lapse, which was great news for Disraeli, who would have found himself completely disarmed by it had it ever been passed. 
Yet, although he had dodged this Austro-Russian bullet, Disraeli found himself faced with a more severe problem at home in the weeks that followed news of the Balkan people's defeats. The Bulgarian and other revolts led by the Balkan states were crushed mercilessly by the Ottomans. But when the first reports and rumours of atrocities in Bulgaria began to filter through to Disraeli and the public in late June 1876, the Prime Minister reacted with a surprising indifference. His determination to focus on British interests rather than the affairs of suffering Christians in far-off lands may have struck Disraeli as a position of strength to be in and, after all, as his duty as a British statesman. But as news of the atrocity grew worse and as Disraeli was heard to dismiss their occurrence as mere coffee-house gossip, the public mood began to turn against him. Disraeli reacted to this troubling tide of opinion by giving his final speech in the House of Commons on the 11th of August 1876, before he transferred himself to the House of Lords as the first Earl of Beaconsfield. Within this speech, Disraeli made much of the fact that his responsibilities lay in maintaining the empire, and took it for granted that this dismissal would be the end of the issue, but it wasn't. Though he did have Darby on side, at least for the moment, and his cabinet continued to side with him, Ministers within that cabinet soon began to discern from the public attitude that the issue was not going away. The stupid brutality of the Turks has gone far to justify the Serbian attack in the eyes of the world, recorded Sir Stafford Northcote, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and this has made it difficult for us to say a word in their favour. Darby at least acknowledged how it was natural that the public feeling should be strong but contended that there was little Britain could conceivably do. By the end of August 1876, it was clear that some within the cabinet worried about how bad Turkey looked to the rest of Europe, as well as to the British public. Above all was the worry that Russia would feel vindicated now to act how she pleased, armed with the knowledge that she would be viewed as morally justified by European and even British public opinion. Thus concerns about morality and British national interest began to overlap at last in Disraeli's mind. To prevent the Russians from interfering, the best option was to surely end the wars that the Ottomans were fighting with their Balkan vassals. To negotiate something like this would be tricky though. Disraeli wished above all to not have to make any concessions to public opinion since, as he told Darby, nothing could be gained from acting as if you were under the control of public opinion. If so, you may do what they like, but they won't respect you for doing it. To Darby, any prospect of trying to partition the empire and appease the revolting Balkan peoples would surely lead to a war, since all the powers will want something, and the division of the spoils is not likely to be made in an amicable manner. If he couldn't lead the way in negotiating an end to the war which would appease the public, and if he couldn't intervene alongside the other powers in a theoretical war motivated by humanitarian concerns, then what path could or would Disraeli take? It was becoming clear that the whole thing would not simply blow over as Disraeli had initially hoped, just as he was on the precipice of having to make a very tough decision, even worse fortune struck. A cutting attack on government policy in the form of a pamphlet called the Bulgarian horrors and the question of the East, emerged into the public discourse on the 6th of September 1876. Its author was none other than the former liberal leader and Israeli's arch-political nemesis, William Gladstone.
William Gladstone had been retired from politics for roughly a year before he became active in creating something of a public relations storm. By writing the pamphlet, Gladstone's entire force and reputation was dramatically re-established within British society. In a devastating attack upon the Turks, the British government's choice of policy, as well as the reasons behind it, and of course, Disraeli himself, Gladstone's pamphlet remains one of the best-selling documents of its kind, and reflects the fact that the public did hunger for news about the region of the world and its goings-on, despite Disraeli's continuing insistence that the events there were being blown out of proportion. While Disraeli had always believed in the importance of placing British interests above all else in foreign policy, Gladstone insisted that it was this very attitude which painted Disraeli as so immoral, and that as a moral Christian nation, Britain had certain responsibilities to jump to the aid of those in need, whatever the perceived consequences to the balance of power or the supposed danger to her prestige. British prestige, Gladstone vehemently argued within this pamphlet and in later speeches, would be found and increased in the moral acts done by men in its name, rather than by the efforts to increase its power and influence by force across the world. If Gladstone's seems like an outdated or naive line of reasoning for a statesman or a former prime minister to support, then you might be surprised to note that Britain went to war in 1914 for reasons very like these. Just like in 1914, in 1876, it was the pull of the electorate within these arguments that mattered, and Gladstone had a very easy time utilising popular arguments like these to challenge Disraeli's policy. For a long time, Disraeli had ignored the plight of the Balkan peoples, who had suffered immensely and lived as second-class citizens even before the revolts broke out. Gladstone's pamphlet was so successful because he captured what the public wanted to read in a single handy document. He had judged their passions, he had correctly gauged them to point firmly in the direction of the Ottomans' oppressed peoples, and against the issue of keeping the barbarous Turks in place. The British people wanted to feel... They were passionate in 1876 about the welfare of others in the world, especially Christians within Europe. Gladstone didn't make them feel necessarily, but he did, in a sense, allow them to, because now that the British public could reason that a great statesman like Gladstone supported their cause, they would be more emboldened to seek an alternative and agitate against the government's chosen policy. Despite our own tendency to agree with Gladstone's sense of morality, after all, why would you not want to save people who are being oppressed and massacred, if not his evangelism and faith, we should also be able to appreciate at the same time that Disraeli was, in a way, right about the Russians. They did stand to gain immensely from any and all acts taken against the Ottomans. They had gained already from the pan-Slavist ideology and, as we know, would do so again in the future. This was why Disraeli had been so hesitant to go along with public opinion and ride the wave of the so-called atrocitarian movement. Gladstone could have reasoned that had he been Prime Minister, he would have gone along with the Berlin Memorandum of old, avoided any of these problems of human suffering, and made the rest of Europe happy. To this, Disraeli would have reasoned that of course he would have, since it was because Gladstone had been so feeble and agreeable in his method of conducting foreign policy in the first place, that nobody took Britain seriously in the concert of powers anymore. 
And for the record, Gladstone has been criticised as naive by historians like John Charmley for believing that just because the public mood was on his side, they represented a virtuous passion or a new public movement, which could be held up as an example of why liberalism put its faith in people. His pamphlet was indeed highly critical, but virtually absent of any suggestions over how to diffuse the situation in the Balkans, though this didn't necessarily matter when the people wanted rhetoric, not solutions. Yet what Gladstone would not have expected when he wrote this pamphlet was just how much it would unify the Conservatives, who beforehand had been faltering. Gladstone's pious moralising made the members of Disraeli's government feel instantly uncomfortable, because it represented the kinds of power to the people movements of the past, such as the Reform Bill riots of the late 1860s. Disraeli's government was thus uncomfortable with the idea of appealing to the people for political strength, but they also opposed Gladstone's notions that highly complex diplomatic problems such as the ones which the Eastern Crisis continued to pose could be solved with a moral foreign policy that seemed to take a reductionist view of the entire situation. Even some of the Liberal Party's own members, such as Lord Hartington, the man of many titles, who held sway over the House of Commons as the Liberal representative there, knew that events were simply not that, well, simple. Gladstone's pamphlet had struck the government as dangerous and saw the newly mobilised public as proof of the need to stand behind their Prime Minister, out of obligation, if nothing else. Disraeli and his ministers thus tried to do some damage control and explained the simple truth that Britain could not motivate the Turks to stop even if they'd wanted to. Darby was tasked with speaking on the 11th of September 1876 to a meeting of workers and representing government policy to them. Darby upheld that there seemed to be a great many people in England who fancy Lord Beaconsfield as the Sultan and that I am the Grand Vizier. Along with this amusing caveat, Darby reminded them of the Eastern Question. The last word of the Eastern Question is this, who is to have Constantinople? No great power would be willing to see it in the hands of any other great power. No small power could hold it at all. This was not a fact of foreign policy that could be, in any way affected by the insanity of the Sultan or by the crimes committed by Turkish troops. In other words, national interest had to be upheld above all others. Despite the visible sense in this strategy, though, it came across inevitably as cold and uncaring for the Balkan victims. This view that the government was morally bankrupt would prove a hard impression for Disraeli to shake off. But the Prime Minister was forced to focus on more tangible options for solving the crisis than continued appeals to the public. He needed a conference to settle the issues, but he first had to find the powers that would agree to one. Disraeli hoped to find a way to make Bismarck do Britain's work for her by getting tacit German approval of a conference on the Eastern Crisis. But Bismarck would not do this because he understood that it would only expose the rift in opinion that existed between the Austrians and Russians. Bismarck himself had struggled over the summer with the issues that the Habsburg-Romanov rivalry threw up. He first and foremost sought to avoid making any definite declaration as to where Germany stood, which of course frustrated Disraeli to no end, since he was trying to do the exact same thing in Britain. Disraeli's efforts to somehow maintain the status quo of the Balkans, without making it seem publicly as though he supported the Ottomans, resulted in a policy that was difficult to define. Among his own colleagues, who would have to defend this policy in the House of Commons in the new season of autumn 1876, 
there was much trepidation over what they would do and how they would go about defending something which they could not quite define themselves. Did Disraeli want war to preserve the Ottoman Empire, or did he accept that he would have to bow to public opinion and allow the Turks to crumble? Or would a conference to maintain the status quo even be viable, desirable, to a public opinion that now viewed any reduction in Ottoman power as deserved and justified? In the background, of course, was the hope that the whole thing would blow over, either by a reduction in the atrocitarian feeling that had so mobilised and outraged British opinion, or in the simple acquiescence of the Ottomans to empower the new Balkan states and pave the road, peacefully-ish, to their new independence. This was wishful thinking, but Disraeli wanted to make it clear to the Turks that Britain would find it increasingly difficult to defend her integrity as she had done in the past, so long as the Ottomans were perceived as the bad guy. In fact, so under pressure had Disraeli become from the public mood that he informed Shuvalov, who informed Gorchakov in St. Petersburg, that he was ready to open negotiations for a joint Anglo-Russian note to be sent to the Turks. This was seen by Disraeli as the best form of damage control he could muster under the circumstances. With Bismarck tying down his Reichheiserbund allies, and with Russia and Austria both continuing their ill-fated courtship that we've examined, Disraeli had run out of options. If he acted now to contain the revolts, then perhaps a full-blown breakup of the Turkish Empire could be prevented before Russia intervened and aggravated the situation. In other words, by organising with the Russians to surgically remove bits of Ottoman land in the Balkans, the aim was to save the Turks from having to give Constantinople in a war with Russia. Disraeli had been forced into making definite steps towards resolution because the Russians were becoming increasingly belligerent. Armed with the note drafted by Anglo-Russian delegates, Ambassador Shuvalov suggested that if the Ottomans refused to accept its terms terms which included self-rule in Bosnia and the status quo to be maintained in Montenegro, then a Europe-wide demonstration against the Ottomans should result, with the newly cooperating Austro-Russian forces invading through Bosnia and Bulgaria respectively, while the British would launch punitive naval measures through the Dardanelles. Belligerent proposals like these went too far for Disraeli and raised his ire almost instantly, but he needn't have worried too much. Much of the threat of this venture depended upon Austro-Russian cooperation, as we saw in their proposed dual-pronged invasion just there. The likelihood of the plan going ahead was very much reduced by the news that the Austro-Hungarian Foreign Secretary Andrasi had refused to join the Russians in the proposed invasion of Ottoman land, and that the Habsburg court would only agree to limited naval manoeuvres. The proposed punitive measures advocated by the Russians had the misfortune to fall just as the rapprochement between them and the Austrians were coming apart at the end of the summer. This agreement had deteriorated due to the Hungarian element and the impossibility of reconciling each other's ambitions, but the reasons for Austria distancing herself from Russia had a lot to do with Bismarck's ability to defuse the situation too. When asked by Russia where Germany would stand in the event of a Russo-Turkish war that involved Austria in some way, Bismarck returned a suitably vague answer aimed at discouraging the Russians from entering into any conflict which might reduce the power of the Dreikaiserbund as a whole. When the Austrians asked Bismarck what Germany would do should relations between Austria and Russia break down, Bismarck responded by advising against any alliances which could lead to complications. The message, though murky, was still clear. 
Bismarck believed that if the Turks did fall victim to a war against both Austria and Russia, then Austria and Russia would end up fighting each other over the spoils. Thus it was better to behave more conservatively and do nothing for the moment. Thus because of Bismarck's actions and geopolitical considerations, the momentary warmness of the Austro-Russian relationship had come to an end. Andrasi immediately pounced thereafter to silence the Russia files in the Habsburg court and appeal to the remainder of his colleagues on the basis that Russian ambitions could not be trusted and that the situation was too volatile to stake Habsburg prestige upon. Bismarck had thus inadvertently pulled Disraeli's chestnuts out of the fire once more. With the Russians and Austrians no longer seeing eye to eye, Britain would have more opportunities to cooperate with the Habsburgs against St. Petersburg. The nightmare of a united Dreikaiserbund that had reigned over the summer of 1876 seemed by early September to have been replaced by a momentary rift between its members. And while Bismarck worked to bring the reluctant Austro-Russians back to at least the level of acquaintances, Disraeli took the opportunity to reaffirm British interest in settling the Eastern question. The message was clear. Despite the stresses his cabinet had endured in strategic concerns and public opinion crises, Disraeli was still sticking to his guns, and although war clouds continued to loom on the horizon, the Prime Minister was confident in his own ability to use the newly emerging tensions in Bismarck's camp to argue for a conference. This time, Disraeli hoped the Russians would at last take the bait. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 